Today, we are in uh, the second part of our series called Five Things That Will Keep Your Family Together. And what we're doing is taking five weeks to uh, talk about some of the challenges that we all face, all of our families face. And we're looking to the Bible to see what it takes for our family to stay together. What does it take for our family to stay together? And, And I started last week by sharing some stats with you and, and some numbers with you that are a little bit depressing, a little bit scary, uh, but, but I think it's important to know what we're dealing with and where, and where we're starting at. And let me just give those to you again. Somewhere between 40 and 50% of couples divorce. One in three kids live in a home without a father. The average student loan debt per household is $49,000. Over seven million children take a form of antidepressant medication. Over 3,000 high school students attempt to take their life every day. The reality is that our families are screwed up. And the reason that our families are messed up is because we're messed up as individuals. And so our prayer for this series has been, these five weeks together, is that God would begin to do something in us. That your spouse is not your problem. Your kids are not your problem. Your in-laws are not your problem. Guess who your problem is? You, all right? And so if God can begin to do something in us, I believe that we'll start seeing things happen and change happen in our family. And so we have been, and we are taking these five weeks to do that. And as a part of these five weeks, we are challenging you to be a part of our 30-day family challenge. Our 30-day family challenge, for the most part, everybody in the room is connected to a family in some way. Husband, wife, mom, dad, grandparent, in-law, aunt, uncle, friend who's practically family, godparent, whatever it is, we're all connected to a family in some way. And so we want you to take the 30-day family challenge. And if you haven't got your calendar yet, maybe you were were out last week, but you're here this week, you still have time. We still have 30 days that you can do this together. So when you leave today, you'll have a chance to take one of these 30-day challenge calendars. On the left are some challenges for your family And on the right is a calendar, and we want you to take this and to go ahead and to schedule when you're going to do the things uh, on the other side of the page, because you won't accidentally do them. So take some time as a family to go ahead and and put all that, write all that in, and all the resources, you can find them on 30dayfamily.com, 30dayfamily.com. We've put them up there. Our team's written devotions for you to do as a family. We've got the budget forms up there, all kinds of instructions and resources for you at 30 Day family.com. All right. Now, the last thing I'll let you know is that uh, the biggest challenge as a part of this series is we are challenging you to be in church together as a family for this entire series. So if you missed last week, start today. And for the next four weeks, we're challenging you to be in church together as a family. All right. Whatever it takes, you know, tell the coach, tell the boss, whatever it takes, Ask God to help you to, to your work schedule, whatever it is, whatever it takes. If one spouse has to be out, the other spouse, bring the kids, whatever it takes to get here together for these weeks of this series. And we're totally bribing your kids, all right, unashamedly bribing the kids, all right? And we've let them know that if they check in four out of five weeks, they're going to get a gift for their family for, some, for you guys to do something together as a family. And, uh, and so we want you to, to, to do that, to make that commitment, and to be here together, okay? Now, let me go ahead and give you the five things that will keep your family together. Number one is God. Number two is forgiveness. 
Number three is margin. Number four is effort. Number five is communication. God, forgiveness, margin, effort, and communication. These are the five things that will keep your family together. And so last week, we started with God. You got to start with God. We don't want God to just be a part of your family. We want your family to be built on Christ. We read that, that in the Bible last week of what it looks like to build your life on God. And we don't want you to just come to church together. We want you to follow Jesus together. And so last week, we just challenged you to view your family through an eternal lens. Zoom out. Don't just think about the immediate problem you have right now. Zoom out. And here's what we said. We believe that the best way to keep your family together for the next 50 years is to do whatever it takes to make sure your family's together in 50,000 years. Because we will all live forever somewhere. Our families will exist forever somewhere We don't want to just make it to the next 50 years. We want to be together in 50,000 years with Jesus together forever. That's what we want. We want our family to be together. So last week was all about building your life and your family on Christ. That's where we have to start. That's where we have to start, okay? But this week, I want to talk to you about the second part, and that is forgiveness, Forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness because if you want to keep your family together, I can promise you it's going to require you to forgive somebody. All right? All right? So that's what we're going to talk about today. I read this story in the Washington Post two weeks ago, and I thought it was too good not to share uh, today. And I just want to read it to you. Ben and Jackie Belknap of Utah saved for a year. Saved cash for a year to buy University of Utah football season tickets. But when they went to find the envelope of the cash, it was gone. They started tearing the house apart to search for the cash under the rugs, in the drawers, in the couch, even in the garbage. Everybody knows what that's like. You can't find your keys. And you've searched everywhere, and you look at that trash can. That trash can looks back at you, and you know, let's do it, all right? And they're never in there. You know, they're never in there. But you get it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Okay, so they're looking through there. And they finally found it. It wasn't in there, though. It wasn't in the places they looked. They finally found it. The envelope and the cash was in the shredder in a thousand tiny pieces. So they immediately knew their son Leo was the culprit. And if you have small boys in the house, you know they're responsible. You're blaming stuff on them that ain't even their fault, but you know they did it somehow. But Leo had been helping his mom shred junk mail and documents, and apparently he thought he was being helpful this time, too, when he shred $1,100 in cash. Yeah, it hurts. So first the mom cried, she said, just for a minute, and then she laughed. And she said, as devastated and as sick as we were, this was one of those moments where you just have to laugh. Now, there was a bit of good news for the family. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing offers a solution in the event that a toddler destroys hundreds of dollars by accident. In fact, the Bureau has an entire mutilated currency division. Did you know your government had this? This is a true true thing, which is devoted to redeeming burned, waterlogged, chemically altered, rodent-chewed, or deteriorated Money, it is a free service to the public, by the way. It handles approximately 30,000 claims per year, redeeming more than $30 million in mutilated cash, 
according to its website. Now, here, here's why I told you that story, because when I read it, I had never heard of the mutilated currency division. Maybe you'd heard about that. I'm not sure. But when I read it, knowing what we were talking about today, here was the thought I had. How amazing would it be if there was like a, a mutilated relationship division? How amazing would it be if there was a place you could go, you know, to, to repair or redeem burned, chemically altered, deteriorated relationships. Like, we'd pay for it. It wouldn't even have to be free. If we could go somewhere to redeem these relationships and to bring them back together, because I know that all of us in the room have experienced the pain of a family relationship that doesn't exist anymore because something happened, somebody did something, someone was hurt, And for whatever reason, the person who was hurt was unable to forgive. I wrote down a couple of examples. Maybe maybe this is you. Maybe it was a parent or spouse who walked out on you decades ago, but but it's still there with you. Maybe it's a mother-in-law who wouldn't or won't stay out of your business. Maybe it's a daughter-in-law who won't let her mother-in-law see the grandchildren. Maybe someone stole from you or borrowed some money and never paid it back. Maybe it's a dad who didn't show up to something really important. Or maybe it's just a big mouth family member who always says hurtful, stupid things. Anybody got one of those in your family? I don't know anybody. Yeah, if you don't, it's probably you, by the way, if you don't know who it is. Everybody's like, I don't know. I don't think we have that. It's you. Okay. It's you. We all know what it feels like for conflict or hurt to push a family apart. So that's why we're going to talk about, about, about forgiveness. If, we, if we're going to talk about keeping our family together, we have to talk about forgiveness. And so today, I want to talk about this in two ways. We're going to talk about it in two ways. The first thing we're going to talk about is being hurt, because everyone in the room is going to be hurt by someone you love. That's a fact. It's a fact. The people you love the most hurt you the most, because you're the most open, you're the most vulnerable with those people, okay? So first, we're going to talk about being hurt, because we're all going to be hurt, but then the second part of the sermon, we're going to talk about healing hurt, because once we're hurt, then what do we do? We have to figure out what it is that that we do. So today, we're going to start by reading uh, from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, towards the very end of the book, in chapter 12, Hebrews gives us some phenomenal relationship advice, and so we're going to read that. It's on your sermon guide. Hopefully, you got a sermon guide when you came in today, but all your scriptures are going to be on there. Uh, If not, you can follow along on your phone or on your Bible, in your Bible. But it's Hebrews chapter 12, just two verses we're going to read together in verses 14 and 15, okay? Here's what it says, starting with verse 14. It says, work, everybody say work. work. Work at living in peace with everyone. That's hard. And work, everybody say work. Work, 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 work. Work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. That's hard. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out. Everybody say watch out. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you corrupting many. Two phrases really stand out. First is work 
at, the first two words, work at peace. We'd say work at it, work at it. We work at, at peace. If, if you want your family and your relationships to have peace, you have to work at it. And I think this is so important because we buy into this myth that the right relationships won't take work. If I marry the right person, we won't have conflict, right? If I, if, I, if, I, if I marry the right person, we won't really have to work on it. If I'm the right kind of parent, then, then I won't have conflict with my kids. They won't do anything stupid, make any bad decisions. I won't feel like I'm doing it wrong if I'm the right kind of parent. If I have the right boss, then I won't have authority issues. I, 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 I won't feel and have all this conflict if I, if I have the right kind of boss. We think that, that if we have to work at a relationship, it's a sign that somehow it's the wrong relationship. Now, disclaimer to the side here, I'm not saying couples counseling four, four weeks into dating, all right? That's a bad sign, okay? So don't do that. But I'm talking about down the road a little bit, just because you have to work at a relationship doesn't mean it's the wrong relationship. Great relationships take work. And so Hebrews says, look, you can have peace, but it ain't free. You've got to work for peace in in your family. You've got to work at it. But it doesn't just say work at it. It also says watch out. Watch out for what? What are we supposed to watch out for? Look at verse 15. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you corrupting many. So according to the Bible, we're supposed to work at peace and watch out for roots of bitterness. We got to be on the lookout for roots of bitterness because roots are always growing. Now, I don't take good care of my yard, all right? So I'm not claiming to be an expert here, but I do know this, that roots are always growing. You spray it, it kills it, it grows back. You pull it, it grows back. I'm looking for the product that's like spray once, never again, you know? Pull once, never again. That's not how it works because roots are always growing. And if you want a great yard, you've constantly got to be looking for where the weeds are growing up and you got to go pull them. They don't go away, right? Well, the same thing is true for your family. Roots are always growing. Text message, social media posts, dinner, dinner missed, obligation, gift. I mean, whatever it is, there's all kinds of ways that roots begin to grow. And, and Hebrews says you got to watch out for those roots of bitterness that are growing. Why is this so important? Because if you pull a root when it's really small, you just pull it right out of the ground. But if you give that thing time, in 20 years, you're going to need a backhoe, right? So if it's small, you can pull it up and move on, and then when it's small again, pull up, because peace is work, peace is work. Oh, man, we just dealt with this two weeks ago. Well, here it is. We got to deal with it again, because peace requires, requires work. And if we don't, it says that, that, that poisonous roots of bitterness grow, corrupting many. And don't we all know what that's like? Because conflict in a family is never between the two people who have the conflict, right? Everybody's got to take sides, Right, so then everybody's got their side. It's Thanksgiving. It's like the West Side Story in there. Like you got you got the sharks and the what, what's the other one? I don't even know. They're the Jets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and so and so now everybody's got sides, and I can't believe they said that. And you know they say that to me too, and I just you know and now ever it's corrupted everybody. 
Because conflict never stays between the two people. And so Hebrews says, you got to work at peace. you got to work at it. And you have to watch out for poisonous roots of bitterness because it's going to grow and grow and grow. And nobody ever plans on being bitter. I do premarital counseling all the time, and I, I always ask the question, what excites you the most about getting married? And no one has ever said, I can't wait to be a bitter wife. Just make my husband's life miserable. Just be, my kids never want to talk to me again. Oh, God, that would be amazing. No one ever says that. I've never talked to a husband who's like, I just want to come home and hide in the garage. No one ever says that. We all want these fun, life-giving relationships. But if you want a peaceful home with no roots of bitterness, you got to work and watch, work and watch, work and watch, because that's what it takes. Now, Jesus actually talked about this too. And anytime Jesus talks about a topic you're talking about, you need to check with him. And so Matthew chapter five, just one verse, Jesus is like, hey, I'll jump into this conversation. He has something to say to us about this idea of working for peace and watching out for roots of bitterness. It's in Matthew chapter five, verse 25. It's on your sermon guide. Here's what it says. Jesus says, when you're on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences on social media. <laughs> what version y'all got? I don't have that. He says, when, you're, when, you have, when, you, when you've got conflict or you're on the way to court with the adversary, text them. No. Email them. No. He says, settle your differences what? Quickly. Good. Quickly. Otherwise, what happens if you don't settle it quickly? Your, your, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. So according to Jesus, if we don't settle matters quickly, we end up in prison. Now, Jesus was literally talking about prison, but we all know what it looks like and feels like to be in a relational prison, to be locked up, Right? Looks like a wife who stayed married for kids but hates her husband. They just coexist. Relational prison. Looks like someone who was betrayed in a divorce and so they've never been able to love again, trust again. Relational prison. Looks like kids who can't answer the phone or come home for a meal because there's too many unspoken words from somebody who hurt them. Relational prison. So Jesus says it's important we settle matters quickly because time doesn't heal wounds. Whoever made that up? What were they talking about? Time does not heal relational wounds. Time infects relational wounds. We all know that's true. You don't just wait and it gets better. The longer you wait, the worse it gets, the more awkward it gets. And we've all felt that awkward feeling of of it, it, it's been long enough now, the conflict and the hurt, it's been long enough that if I bring it up, it's more awkward than to just let it go. And so it just lingers and roots grow and roots grow and roots grow and we can't just pull it up like a little weed anymore, right? And so I think it's important if, if time doesn't heal wounds, time infects wounds and we're supposed to be working at peace and we're supposed to be watching out for roots of bitterness, we're supposed to settle matters quickly, I think it's important that we talk about wounds, specifically how do we respond to people who wound us, who hurt us. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention to this, but we read three verses from the Bible. We read 
Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, and we read Matthew 5, verse 25. And I don't know if you noticed what they had in common, what the common thread throughout these three Bible verses were, but they said, work at peace, watch out for roots of bitterness, settle matters quickly. What, what do all of these verses have in common? Well, here's what it has. Everything that we read and read puts the responsibility on me to have peace. You see it? Didn't mention jerks, liars, thieves, your mother-in-law, your teenage kid. It didn't even talk about the, the, the uncle who owes you money. Not even in there. Didn't even mention it. The uncle who owes you money. He said, author and Jesus, puts all the responsibility on you to have peace. Right? No clauses or exceptions. It's on us. It's our responsibility. If you spot it, you got to settle it. But most of us don't live like that, do we? No, we don't. Most of us, the couples, the families that I counsel, we're trying to figure out how to keep it together after years and years and years and years of, of backdated wounds because we never settled it. We never talked about it. We never communicated about it. I'll talk to husbands who are bitter at their, at their wife, and they, they'll begin to talk to me about you know, what she did or what she said or what she doesn't say or what she doesn't do or how she acts or whatever it is, and they'll, and they'll tell me. And when they get done, I always say, what did she say when you told her that? Oh, God, I could never tell her that. You've never told her? No. Or, or I'll, talk to, I'll talk to parents who don't have a relationship with their kids anymore, and they'll, tell, they'll talk about how bad it hurts, and they will even admit to me they were wrong, and they were the ones who, who caused the distance, and they're the ones who overreacted, and they're the ones who pushed them away. And I'll always ask, well, what did they say when you admitted that to them? Oh, no, I've never, I've never said that to them. You've never said that to them? No, no. We don't settle it. We don't settle matters. We don't work at peace. We don't watch out for bitterness. And then we wonder why our families don't have peace or why conflict always occurs. We're waiting on them to take the first step. We're waiting on them to make the phone call. We're waiting on them to apologize. But Hebrews and Jesus didn't say anything about them. Didn't bring it up. It's all about you. It's all about me. Time allows bitterness to grow. Hurt turns into anger. Anger turns into bitterness. And we're not pulling up a weed anymore. We're trying to dig up an oak tree. And I don't know if you've ever seen where they've tried to dig up a tree that's been there for a really long time, but the roots run everywhere. It can mess up the foundation of a home can change the whole landscape of a lot when they go to dig that up because of time. But what if it was possible, what if it was possible to settle matters quickly? What, what, if, it was, what if it was possible, or maybe even better, what if it was possible to have a family or a home that wasn't always on the verge of conflict and drama. Come on, just imagine for a second how amazing that would be. 
if you knew that, like, man, it's, it, it, it'll be weeks or months before we have our next big drama, our next big conflict, that this idea that, that, like, we're not living at a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10 of, of anger and hurt and conflict. Sometimes you come home from work and you just sit in the garage for a couple of minutes because you don't know if you want to walk in there to that. Right? You need your spouse to have like a mood ring on just so you can get a, like what color are we on today? I'm just trying to gauge where we are. Right? What if it didn't have to be that way? What if we created the type of climate and culture in our home that was high grace, high forgiveness? High grace, high forgiveness, low drama, low conflict. I believe we can, and, and, and my family works very hard to try to create that home. We still have our struggles for sure, but I believe it's possible for every family. But in order to do that, it requires us to make a very important, a very important decision. And I want to, for just a, for just a, a moment here, we're going to get to the second part, I promise. But for just a moment here, I want to just talk about this idea of offense, this idea of being hurt and being wounded. And this is going to upset some of you, just a heads up, just hang with me, because the whole sermon is about offense anyway, so, um, but, but just hang with me for a second. There, there are two stages, there, there are two stages to offense, two stages to being offended for every person in the room, anything that's ever been done to you or will happen to you, there are two stages to being offended. The first stage of being offended is feeling offended. You feel offended. Somebody said something, did something, didn't say something, didn't do something, and you feel offended. It doesn't make you wrong. It makes you human. You feel offended. It's how you feel. You feel how you feel. You feel offended. Nothing wrong with that. Not even any way to avoid that, by the way. You will feel offended. But the second stage of offense is choosing to be offended. You will feel offended. But choosing to be offended is a choice that you make. It's different than feeling offended. And, and, and I'm not trying to belittle what happened to you. I'm not trying to minimize the hurt that, that happened. I know it hurt. I know it brings up painful memories. But offense is a choice. Not feeling offended. Matter of fact, if you were to go and to look up definitions for the word offense and bitterness... Here's what you would find. Offense is the perception of being wrong. That's the way Webster defines it, that it's in how you see it. It's a perception. And then with bitterness, it is a, it is a feeling of unfair outcomes. And so it's all in how we process what's happening to us. I am not saying today that it's possible to never feel offended, but I do believe it's possible to live an unoffendable life. To be able to make the choice to not be offended. I heard Pastor Kevin Gerald share this week, and I thought this was great, five, five reasons not to be offended. And this is, this is so good. Number one, it's exhausting to be offended drains you. Number two, it's distracting. You can't do what you need to do because you can't, you only think about what you're mad about. Number three, it creates collateral damage. It affects everybody around you. Number four, you attract other offended people. You ever notice how offended people run in groups, voting blocks politically or whatever? Like, that you just everybody's offended together. 
right? But number five is probably the worst. Healthy people start avoiding you. If you're a person that's high drama, high conflict, high offense, healthy people just avoid you because they have made the decision in their life to not be that type of person. And, and, and honestly, you're exhausting and distracting. So they, 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 they're not going to do that. Now, maybe you're thinking, Jason, wait a second. I thought you were going to help me forgive someone who hurt me, but I feel like you're getting on to me. Well, I am, but I, 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 we're going to talk about that in a second. I'm not saying it's your fault, what they did to you. But I want to make sure to point out that it's a lot easier, and I would even say a lot more rewarding, to try to live a life that is less offendable than to have to muster the courage and emotional strength to constantly be forgiving people who have hurt you. And here's what I mean by that. Let's do the work that it takes to try to clear up all of the unforgiveness and offense and bitterness in our past. That is a worthwhile cause that needs to be done. But what if we made the decision, to, instead of all that energy and effort that it took to clean up all of the hurt and the scars from our past, what if we said we would rather put that amount of work and energy moving forward into living an unoffendable life? So that, not that forgiveness can be quantified, because Jesus wouldn't let us do that, but in a way, like, I would rather move forward and live my life needing to forgive less than to have to come up with all of the emotional courage and strength and awkward conversations and tears that it takes to dig up roots that are buried deep. Does that make sense to everybody? And so as I was thinking about this message, I thought, man, we really got to deal with forgiveness, but what if we took some time before we start talking about how to heal up, what if we talked about some things that we could do in order to not need to heal up as much, right? And I think that's so important. What if we decided today to make the choice to not be offended? Like if we just decided, like we're just, we're just not going to have an offendable home. I'm not going to be an offendable spouse. I'm not going to be an offendable parent. Oh, I'm going to feel Offended. Can't believe they said that to me. They didn't do that or they did that. But I am making a decision today that I will not choose to be offended. And I am not going to fertilize this weed or this tree that is growing in my heart. I, I want to be an unoffendable person. And uh, I just think this is so important because I see so many families who are just living at the peak of stress and conflict. I don't honestly know how you do it, to be honest with you. Just hearing the cliff notes from you wears me out. <laughs> and you're living with it. I can't imagine what you could accomplish with your life if you got to take all of that energy that is drained out of you and got to put it into something that could build. I need to stop. I'm about to get feisty. All right. I can tell when I'm going to start saying something I shouldn't say, so... That's so why I have Andrea sitting right here. Um, every fight ends up being about the same thing when you live in this high conflict, high drama house. You're not fighting about the dishes. You're fighting about feeling neglected four years ago or 
You know, you're not fighting about how you spent the money at Target. You're fighting about feeling like you're not an equal or whatever it is because you never dealt with it. You've never settled it. Um, And when you become a bitter person, you just assume the worst about people. They meant to, they want to, they never do, you know, and uh, there's no benefit of the doubt. So, um, I just think it would be amazing if, if, if we were able to create the type of home where little things don't become big things. Come on, how amazing would that be if we created the type of home and raised the type of kids and sent them out into the world where little things don't become big things? Hey, this, this is a little thing, and it deserves some attention and some conversation and some communication, but we're not going to treat little things like they're big things because then when big things pop up, everything feels the same. And that's not the same thing. So God, if you'll help us, and it has to do with me choosing to live an undefended life, I'm not going to let little things become big things. Okay, I'm running out of time. Let's keep going. So that's part one, being hurt. Got it. I'm going to try to not be offendable, choose offense when I feel offended, but... I've already got like, I've already got a history book, Jason, of offense against me, hurt against me, deep in my heart. I can't just snap my fingers and be done with it. Like, I don't, how do I forgive the people who have hurt me, the people that I love the most, the family that is with me? Well, the good news is that is it's, it's simple. It's just not easy. It's simple, it's not easy. Matter of fact, just one verse in the Bible tells us how. One one verse in the whole Bible gives us what we need in order to begin to take the steps to forgive people. And I want to read that to you. It's on your sermon guide. But Jesus was hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23. And just to set the scene for you, to remind you, of what's happening to him, he had come and given his life for people, done miracles for people. A week earlier, he had been praised by people in a parade, and they were saying, you're the man, you're the king. And those same people who he gave his life for, who did miracles for, and who said he was amazing, turned on him and began to yell, crucify him. And they literally betrayed him He was beaten and he was crucified, but he wasn't dead yet. So he's hanging on the cross with nails in the palms of his hands, his feet nailed to a wooden cross, beaten, naked, and bloodied because people had turned on him. That's the scene of what's happening. And he's looking at them. They're standing there watching this. The people who he gave his life for did miracles for and had worshipped him, that had turned on him. He's, he's looking at them. And no person in history had the supernatural ability to get even like Jesus. Come on, payback is sweet sometimes. And Jesus could have cursed their family generations forever. He could have called out bears to swallow them. He could have made their crops never grow. He could have made all the women infertile. All the men bald, right? He, he could have done it. He could have done whatever he wanted to do to get even. But in maybe his greatest miracle, 
having every option at his disposal, his choice was to forgive. It's in verse 34, Jesus hanging on the cross, looking at the people who who put him there. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, we know when we read other, uh, other parts of the story, we know that Jesus felt offended. He even felt offended at God. We know he felt offended. But his choice was forgiveness. And he said to them, to God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He gives us in this one sentence the key to forgiveness. The reason we struggle to forgive is because we are desperately hoping that the person who hurt us feels uh, an ounce of the pain that we have felt. We're waiting for pain to be fairly distributed across all people who are responsible. But that's never how it happens. I've, I've walked down this road with too many people that the person who is hurt stays locked up for years and the person who did the hurt moves on with their life. And so we're saying, I'll let it go as soon as I feel like it's been made right. But it never works. Jesus, hanging on that cross, chose forgiveness. And the, and the way he was able to do it, he told us, he showed us, the way he was able to do it is he said, Father, I want you to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He was able to forgive them because he recognized that even though they hurt him, they did not realize what they were doing. And the same is true for you. And you're like, no, 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 not me. They know they abused me. They know what they said to me. They know how, they know. I'm not saying they don't know what they did. I'm saying they have no idea what it did to you. They have no idea what they were doing. We give so much credit to the people who hurt us, don't we? we, They're brilliant masterminds who created this master plan to destroy our lives. We figure out how it was their life's mission to hurt us and We give them so much credit. And I'm sure that there are some sick people in the world whose purpose in life is to hurt people and they get some pleasure out of it. I've just never met any of them. I've just met lots of hurt people who hurt people. And if we were somehow able to step back and go, I feel offended, but I recognize that the reason they did what they did is because they are a sinful, broken person. It's the same reason I do what I do. And they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they may know what they did, but they don't know what they did to me. And so, God, would you forgive my dad for walking out on me? He has no idea what he did to me. God, would you forgive my spouse who left me with debt and kids? They have no idea what they did to me. God, would you forgive that pastor or that spiritual leader that that built me up and I put my trust in them and my faith in them and then they let it all fall? They don't know what they did to me. 
God, would you forgive my kids who told me they hated me and haven't called me and talked to me? They don't know what they did. The reality is this is that you're waiting for it to be made right before you move on, but Jesus already made it right. And your offenses against God are way worse than any offense that's ever been done to you. And Jesus covered your sins and made your sins right by what he did on the cross. So here's the question. Are you willing to accept what Jesus did on the cross for what they did to you? If they never apologize, if they never say anything, if you never bring it up, are you able to accept what Jesus did on the cross as payment for what they did to you? I need him to make it right. Jesus made it right. Jesus made it right. So would you be willing to have the courage today? If you want to keep your family together, would you be willing to have the courage to do what Jesus did? And to pray, God, forgive whoever for doing whatever. They didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing or what they did to me. But I accept what you did on the cross as payment for their offense against me. What kind of home could we build? What kind of family could we assemble if we chose to create a high grace, high forgiveness, unoffendable family? Let's pray.